The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. Caroline, I can't believe it's three days to Christmas. I guess when you're sitting in the office, you don't feel that Christmassy. But, but when when does Christmas when is Christmas really going to start for you this year? Shall I really admit to this? I think probably at twelve noon on Friday, once I finish up tomorrow's UK politics program, I'm going to thoroughly ignore the government's advice this week to be cautious and not drink too much. So drunk by two p.m. <laughs> Might not say. Might not put it that bluntly. I should should point out that we start at four o'clock, so twelve twelve pm is a full day's work. It is. (laughs) It's not a half day. Uh, Good stuff. Look, we're trying to keep it cheery because, frankly, the economic news in the last couple of days has been really grim, and it's getting worse for the Conservatives and for everybody in the UK. So the economy shrank in the third quarter more than expected. So down uh, three tenths of one percent, and that's only versus um, the figure that we had about a month ago. Yeah, and the Confederation of British Industry have weighed in. They say that the UK economy fell deeper into recession in the fourth quarter. Remember, we're not in a technical recession yet, but many people believe we are in a recession nonetheless. Uh, More on that in a second. On the second anniversary of Johnson's Brexit deal, the BCC say that businesses feel they are banging their heads against the wall when it comes to trading with the EU. Well, let's get more now with Bloomberg's chief UK economist, Dan Hansen. Now, Dan, uh, on Brexit, is there anything that the government can do to uh, Ease, uh, ease the pain that businesses are, are feeling on this? Well, I think it's really difficult. I think if you, if you remember um, back at the start of 2021, we had this big shift in the UK away from the single market and towards this new trading relationship. And that, it, it was a very immediate, sudden um, change in the trading relationship we had. And it was for the good side of the economy and the services side of the economy. And I think businesses are still adjusting to that um, and you, you sort of when you were thinking about this before the event the modeling that was done most people assumed that we'd have this and in fact it was built into the the agreement that the UK made with the EU a transition period and there was no transition period for this change from one trading relationship to another so I think from the government's perspective what the government can do is very very difficult other than attempting to try and uh, essentially what I would say is cast aside some of what has been agreed and try and smooth the transition a little bit for businesses but the fundamental fact is we had this sort of cliff edge at the start of 2021 and businesses are still trying to adjust to it now and there's this political bind we know the Conservative Party's in it can't be seen to be you know the Sunak cannot be seen to be seen to be soft on Brexit so I think it's really hard for the, the politics really um, 
clashes with the economics on this. So yeah. I think this is a story that's going to continue to rumble on into 2023 as well. Yeah, absolutely, because the BCC, the businesses, want a, quote, honest dialogue about how to improve the trading relationship with the EU. And then you have, you know, um, going out to sort of defend, to bat for government, junior ministers like Mark Spencer this morning, you know, having say, saying there's always more that can be done, but actually it's really hard to see what more can be done um, to improve the kind of Brexit relationship and then fundamentally you've also got this really bad backdrop of the of the gdp figures what's the outlook looking into 2023 for the uk is is there any bright spot well look i think the data we've had out is it it doesn't look good as you as you mentioned at the top of the show we've got we've had a revision down for the third quarter so we've got minus 0.3 um fall in gdp a 0.3 percent fall now that isn't huge so it's not you know it's not the worst, you know, it's not the worst we've seen here in the UK. You know, you only have to think back to the pandemic and back to the financial crisis, and we had much bigger falls in GDP then. Um, but what I think you're going to see over the course of the next year or so is what I would describe as a slow burn recession. So a fall in GDP of, we think, about 1.5%. Now, that's small relative to history. Um, so if you think of the 80s, you had about a 4 4.5% fall in GDP. The 90s, a 3% fall, and the financial crisis was about a 6% fall. But nonetheless, you know, the economy is going through um, a very tough time. And I think the thing for 2023 and the thing to remember is that the rises in interest rates that we've had this year, they haven't hit the economy yet, really. That that's going to be felt in 2023. And that's actually going to be the story. You know, fingers crossed, inflation will ease a bit. So the the living standard squeeze will begin to come ease off a little bit, I think. But, it, it, but it's the interest rate story that will be that will be key. Yeah, Dan, I wanted to ask you about about consumer spending because I think it's probably fair to say it's, it's been weak so far, hasn't it? But it hasn't dropped off a cliff in the way that some people expected it to. And, and my hunch is that people will spend over Christmas because they like to spend over Christmas and they feel it's important. But I guess January, February, it, it could be a different picture. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, I think if you look, in fact, if you look at the data today, you've had consumer spending being revised down and revised down quite significantly. Yeah, the same for business investment as well. So you've got two bits, sort of 75% of the UK economy is starting on a very weak footing and we're going into a tougher winter. Um, and I think I think you're you're absolutely right that, you know, we might get through well, we'll get Christmas might be a little bit cheerier, but you move into you move into January and people I think will will really think about what they're what they're spending and their outlays. And and things could look look different. You know, we're we're con- expecting the economy to sort of contract by very small amounts in each mm. quarter, but it's quite possible, and it's very likely. In fact, it'll be much more volatile than that. So you could get bigger drops, and then then smaller drops followed by that. But I think yeah. I think that's a good characterization of what we what we might see. Yeah, and and there's such big divergence, isn't there, in, in terms of how people are spending? But they do see much more where you know people in poor areas are spending less on food, for example. We know that, and others, meanwhile, are kind of saving more. So you do have really quite big changes in in behaviour um, that I think the government are going to have to think about quite a lot. But Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Always great to have you on the program. That is our Bloomberg Chief UK Economist, Dan Hansen. Well, speaking of the housing market, we spoke to Richard Donald, Executive Director of Research at property website Zoopla. Now, he was talking about how a lot of pandemic era changes when it comes to homes are actually being reversed at the moment. So think town versus country, flats versus houses. He doesn't actually see, though, a 10% drop in home prices in the UK as actually most economists do. Here he is. 
We expect um, prices to fall by up to 5% next year. I think um, there's been a whole load of reasons that, uh, and clearly, well, sorry, there's clearly an int- a mortgage rate hit to buying power, which we need to factor in. The mini budget sort of sent rates higher than ever, anyone was expecting. So we expect rates to, mortgage rates for borrowers to fall back to 45 to 5% at the start of next year. But the other thing is banks have not really been layering on risk uh, like they've done in previous cycles. We haven't been loosening credit standards. And so you know, consumers have not been allowed to sort of overpay for housing um, in the run up to this this sort of shift in market conditions. And so that's why we think price falls are going to be lower uh, at the lower end of expectations. OK, Um. in terms of those pandemic trends i mean i think i was quite shocked at the beginning of the pandemic by how quickly people decided to leave urban areas and buy you know a bigger house perhaps in a coastal area or certainly outside of of the capital is that really changing now there was a lot of pent-up demand when you effectively lock up an entire nation in their homes uh, during that first lockdown people really thought about is this the right home for me does it meet our needs you know, we're not near friends and family. There was definitely pent up demand to move, not just from those with more flexible working arrangements or are able to work from home, but also we've seen this big spike in retirement, which is a big trigger to people move. And that makes you far more footloose on where you could move to. So I think what we're doing now is we're sort of running out of this pent up demand to move to rural, more urban areas. And what we're seeing is demand holding up much better in, in cities, affordable cities where jobs are being created and that's continuing to stimulate demand for housing even though mortgage rates are are that much higher. What do you make though of the mortgage guarantee scheme the extension of that support so this is basically the government kind of helping first-time buyers get on the market um, and and buy their first homes what do you make of that It's, it's been quite a controversial policy? It has um I think it's it helps a relatively small number of people overall, but it's an important support mechanism for those that need to refinance or where values have fallen for people up to sort of 95% lending. It, and I think 95% lending has become more of a marginal product overall. It's it's not as, as important as it was, say, in the run-up to 2007. Uh, but for people refinancing who need that support, it's an added protection. But not all banks are part of the scheme. You know, other banks are sort of doing their own schemes up to 95%. Mm. I think it's a trend we're seeing where mortgage lenders are working really closely with their customers to make sure that if they're coming off, say, 2% onto 6%, you know, they're, they're working through the best solution for them uh, to avoid unnecessary you know, build-up in arrears and, and, and the risk of repossession. How much pressure do you think homeowners are going to be, and particularly mortgage holders, next year, You know, as we are expecting this big sort of turnover in terms of people on fixed Um, mortgage rates and what do you think the government is going to do about it because that's going to be really quite crucial to whether or not the property market in the UK remains stable or you know sees a big decline that's right I think um, look a lot of this is about refinancing of existing deals Um, I think yes your average person coming off a two percent mortgage rate under six is potentially faced with three four five hundred pounds extra in mortgage payments you can avoid that totally by adding five years to your mortgage term for the average remortgager. Uh, But again, that's going to add a significant amount to your overall interest payments. And so it's that balance that every lender is going through, which is talking to customers. Can you afford to pay this much more? Do we extend your term? Do you move on to interest only for a period of time? So, and that that's going to, that sort of work will avoid 
forced sellers, effectively people who simply can't afford to pay the mortgage and will need to sell. And that's going to ease some of that downward pressure on property prices. So we just don't see forced sellers being as big as, as one might expect. So that was Zooplard's Executive Director for Research, Richard Donnell, there speaking to me earlier on Bloomberg Radio. Um, not everybody's quite as optimistic, though, as Zooplar is. You know, they're seeing really quite a modest decline in home prices uh, and not too many distressed sellers. Let's see if that changes. It depends a lot on jobs, of course, next year. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Household incomes in the UK have fallen for a fourth straight quarter, leaving Britons on course for the worst period for living standards in memory. Yeah, the data was out uh, today. It means that real incomes per head are 3.1% lower in the last quarter from a year earlier. In other words, we're all poorer. This is not great news. Joining us now for a discussion about this and the wider issues is John Stepek, who is editor of our excellent Bloomberg newsletter, Money Distilled. So uh, this is really not good news as we go into the Christmas weekend. Everybody's much more aware, aren't they, of, of how much they've got in the bank. It's quite grim. Yeah, it's, it's really quite depressing, um, particularly given this was meant to be the first you know, Christmas after covid we were all meant to be going out partying and enjoying ourselves. And of course, you know, the kind of the, the COVID crisis has been replaced by the cost of living crisis. So uh, if you're feeling mildly depressed ahead of this festive season, then I don't I don't blame you. Yeah, and we're going to try and cheer you up, though, I think, throughout the show, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to be an optimist. So I'm already going to throw in an optimistic question here. Uh, not all households are, are, are struggling to find money, are these? Some households have got money saved from the pandemic. And a lot of uh, overall household... Um, balance sheets are in a, a reasonable state aren't they and, and some people have have got savings there but they're running down so it, it so because so, spending has so far held, held off hasn't it it has held up and i mean to be fair i mean you're right um there's there's the element of saving now unfortunately obviously the saving is never evenly distributed um and unfortunately you know it also tends to be the people who uh kind of need it least that, that have the most um at the same time uh, you know, you have to do think about this in the aggregate because one of the reasons that although technically we're probably in a recession, that's not mm. actually confirmed yet, but we're probably in a recession, one of the reasons that hopefully it'll be shallow is because people do en masse have enough money to see them over this cost of living hump. Um, I mean, what 
am looking out for next year, I have to say, is what happens with the labour market. Mm. Because jobs, yeah. Well, yeah, as long as people manage to hold on to their jobs, then you might feel, you know, you might be you might be feeling the pressure on your income, but at the same time, you can keep paying the bills. As long as people get access to credit, they will probably keep spending as well. Um, and there's certainly no evidence from the uh, kind of, you know, what companies are saying and the consumer credit statistics are saying that we are seeing a massive drop-off in anything. I mean, obviously, whenever we get kind of trading updates in January from high street retailers, that will be something to watch. And that's when I think we'll get our first sense of, how bad things may or may not get. Mm. But at the moment, I mean, I would say the jury's out. Let's, fingers crossed, things will be not as bad as they could be in 2023. Yeah, but it's quite something, isn't it? Um, when even my rich mates that I know uh, have gone to Aldi to buy a magnum of champagne for, for the festive <laughs> season. So, you know, it's it's not leaving anyone out. I, don't let's know, be I, I thought Aldi was the ultimate middle class signifier. Oh, That's there I... you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm smart with money, but, you know, I'm not going to, you know, i got to get all these shipped in there. Yeah, local brands from all around. Well, you can do the you can do the Aldi Waitrose double, which is yeah. probably the, the you yeah. know, the, which is the ultimate kind of. You well, know. the high low yeah. combo yeah. shopping. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Well, that's a bit of a bit of a slap down to my friends, <laughs> but I love it. Okay, um, look, what, what about the other big um, kind of issue in this in this week, um, which is of course the strike the strike action? Because you you know you talk about jobs. The other factor is, are we going to get a decent pay rise next year? You know, certainly if you're a public sector worker, you're trying to get that out of out of government um how bad is it i i know a lot of people are talking about it being similar to the 1970s yes it was a decade that i was born in but i can't remember it is it that bad are there past comparators when you look at december a month where train drivers and nurses ambulance workers and um driving instructors all sorts of civil servants are on strike yeah i mean i don't i really don't think we're well there yet um I mean, one thing, I mean, union membership, for example, in the 70s peaked at about 50% of the population. Um, it's now about 25% of the population. Now, to be fair, the, kind of, the portion of that that's public sector has diminished much, much less significantly over that period of time. Um, but in terms of kind of like, you know, kind of days lost to strike action and all the rest of it, there's no real comparison. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that things can't get worse. I mean... Something that's really interesting is that it may, I mean, this surprised me, but you know, in the 1970s, real wages rose pretty much every year. Um, so people were actually, their kind of, uh, their their real income was going up. That's a great fact. Our wages, you know, have kind of collapsed, both in the public and the private sector. Um, and I suppose the, the other thing that I would say is that in the private sector, I mean, the last kind of. Employment data, the average rise was around about 6%-ish. And the public sector, it's around about kind of 2%-ish. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that that might be the case. And you can argue about whether it's you know fair or not, given that public sector workers, you know, to be fair, kind of like much bigger increases in private sector workers in the run-up to 2008. Um, but that doesn't really... That's not going to cut the mustard politically, because... You know, if if you can point to these figures, you know, if you're a union rep, you can point out, well, look, the private sector's getting six, seven percent, and we're only getting two percent. You know, you don't really have a leg to stand on. What, what what's the way out for the government? I mean, take the, the nurses' strike as an example, which is perhaps the, the, the most uh, extreme. They've been offered four and a half, five percent on mm. average. 
Uh, they say they want 19 percent. How do how do you how do you square that? How how can the government kind of move towards that? It's, you know, it's it's such a gap, isn't it? Actually, this, this is probably you could probably have a whole other kind of half hour conversation about this. But uh, John Ralph, who's a pensions consultant, um, came out with an article in the Telegraph the other day. Um, one thing that uh, public sector workers do have is extremely generous pensions. Again, not a criticism, not a political point, but relative to private sector pensions, they are they are they're brilliant. They're great. Um, one way that you could square the circle is to have give uh, public sector workers the choice of, look, you can either get a large pay rise today and we'll tweak the pension scheme so that it's less generous in the longer run, um, or, or you can keep your pension but your, you know, your pay rise will be in line with the 4 or 5%. Because the, the, the problem here is that you know, we've, we've just spent a year or sorry, no, six months arguing about whether Britain's got enough money to pay for stuff. You know, this is why we keep talking about how the gilts market blew up in September, mm. because Quasi Quartain kind of decided that, you know, to be overly exuberant about how much we could spend. So now that we're in a kind of era where we're trying to be a bit more careful about that, it is kind of difficult to turn around and say to nurses, well, yeah, OK, we'll give you a 20% pay rise, um, without saying, well, right, well, where is that money going to come from? But, um, and... <laughs> But I think that Rishi Sunak and the government are in such a difficult position here. And I think this is where actually, you know, a lot of kind of inside Westminster types talk about how um, the prime minister has not been forged by a general election. But actually, I think that this is the moment where you realise that that's massively important. He's not had to go door to door and glad hand people and try to convince them, you know, to turn up and actually, you know, mark the Tory name in the box, as it were, at election time. And that kind of political nous, now that there's this acute pressure on him, I, I think that's quite evident, don't you? I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean... I suppose one thing that I'm kind of hoping in 2023 is that we get fewer prime ministers than we did this year. Um, and, you know, Unlikely we'll get more. <laughs> yeah, but, but, mm, yeah, let's just see. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing is, is with Rishi Sunak, I think what he's got going for him is that he is arguably the least offensive candidate for the job at the moment in terms of in the internal politics That's of the That's a great Tory endorsement. Party. Well, absolutely. But, I mean, this is it. You know, it's kind of... If, if it's one of those things where you think, yes, he's probably, I, I'm not sure he is doing a great job of this, and I think he probably needs to be out there more. Um, on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, well, internally speaking, if the Tories can't unite under him, then no, they can forget it. There, there is no one else. Um, and, you know, Labour is probably not that desperate to see an election quite yet because they'd rather get through the. And, they, and bit. Labour will not be drawn on what they would do, you know. Yeah, mm, pay. Pay. yeah. Well, yeah, because again, you've got this problem with the, the austerity stuff. Now, I mean, I, I'm not sure I agree with all of this, that we've got a huge problem with our, uh, with our public finances. Um, I think an awful, lot, an awful lot of that was down to the panic in the pensions market, which has now been sorted out. But let's part that and say that people were freaked out by their mortgage jumping by about two percentage points in a month. And that is understandable. And neither the Conservatives nor Labour can turn around and say, oh, we're going to throw caution to the winds because people are now worried that that would happen again. And uh, talking of mortgages, I want to get your predictions on the housing market for 2023. <laughs> I, I know you've been pinned down on this before <laughs> and I want to pin you down here. Well, so, so anyway, so it's background-wise, uh, I, I, I was on a podcast the other day and I said that 30% 
was quite possible. 30% drop in house prices. 30% drop in house prices. Now, that is in real terms, okay, so that's after inflation, which may sound like a, a bit of a cop-out, but... But that is that's what has historically happened when we've had house price crashes. Um, again, going back to the seventies, actually, in the seventies, house prices didn't fall in nominal terms at all. In fact, they rose by you know, a, a ridiculous amount. Uh, but in real terms, after inflation, they actually fell by about thirty percent. And actually, capital economics. I was looking at this. If you take the nationwide figures, um, and then you kind of turn them into you know real figures after inflation. And house prices are already down in real terms by 8% since the August peak. So that's like in a couple of months. Um, so I guess what I'm saying, 30% sounds a lot, but it's actually kind of historically in line with the average, mm. assuming we do get a crash. I think, yeah, I think it's less about 30% and it's more about the moniker that you attach to it because I think the word crash is so loaded but John thank you so much for your time thanks so much for being with us well that is it for us today if you like the programme don't forget you can subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by James Walcock and Marufal Hussain was on sound I'm Caroline Hepke I'm Ewan Potts we'll be back with more tomorrow this is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.